okay, what if I live to 100 and what if I die tomorrow? Like, will I regret how I spent my money if both of those things were true? I feel like I'm always trying to optimize my spending, my saving for those two people at the same time. But I think that's the way we all should be living our life with one foot in the present, one in the future. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Chris Bailey, author of Hyperfocus, How to Be More Productive in a World of Distraction. Chris also wrote a book called The Productivity Project, Accomplishing More by Managing Your Time, Attention, and Energy. As you've probably surmised from those first few titles, Chris is an expert about productivity, but he's also, I think, an expert about what it means to live a good life. Not just a productive life, but a life of happiness and meaning. Chris's website, alifeofproductivity.com, is the place where he chronicles the many things he's learned about what it means to live a productive life. Chris turned down several full-time job offers after graduating business school. His plan was to follow his passion, to devour everything about the subject of productivity, and then write every day about what he learned. By the time he finished his year-long experiment, his work had been read more than a million times around the world. He was invited to write a book. His books have now been published in more than 20 languages, and his website exists for the purpose of helping you be more productive, happier, healthier, and more productive. In this conversation, we talk about all kinds of things related to productivity, things that go beyond simple ideas, although I think many of them are very interesting, but also that you can then apply in your own life. We talk about what hyperfocus is, how to do it, why it matters, and its counterpart, scatter focus. Chris goes deep on the science of caffeine and other chemicals. We talk about something called an implementation intention. We talk about attentional space. We talk about what Chris has discovered about the fact that the quality of your attention determines the quality of your life, how to use it more intelligently, how to use it more effectively, how to use it more enjoyably. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Chris Bailey. Chris, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I'm so glad you are. Chris, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Life is about extracting meaning out of things that on the surface don't appear meaningful. So everyday experiences, if we can bring engagement and enjoyment to those, I don't know, I'm just talking off the, this is the first thing that came to mind, but I really do believe that life is about engagement. And if we can become engaged with things, 
by God, we're going to have a pretty good life. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, I'm reminded of a teacher. I, of mine. I got it right. I got, I got it right. That was <laughs> you passed. The, Congratulations. Yes. We can go to the next stage in the podcast. That's right. It doesn't right. have to end. Yes. That was good. The, That's a great. The, the questions only get harder from here. Oh, though. damn it. That's the $100 question. <laughs> That's right. So the next one, and it's, is it Canadian or US dollars these days? Well, I hope it's U.S. dollars right now. It's the exchange rate is uh, 1.35. It's nice as a Canadian making U.S. dollars. My publisher's in the U.S., but I know it works the other way too, where a lot of Canadians have to spend U.S. dollars to hire contractors. So I don't know. I think it depends what side of the equation you're on with what's good. (laughs) Yeah, that's so often true in life. Yeah. Chris, I understand that you were raised by a couple of psychologists. Yeah. I was raised by a tribe of two psychologists, my mother and father. (laughs) What was that like? I don't know anything different. So I have to say that it's pretty normal. You know, both my parents, they like to say, because bringing girlfriends and partners home, they're always, I have a wife now, but even now my wife is like, are they psychoanalyzing me? Like, are they picking apart what I'm saying? But they've always said, you know, when we come home, we're leaving our work at work and it's more work for them to psychoanalyze people. So maybe on a second kind of nature, they did it, but I think it was pretty normal. You know, I woke up, went to school, got home, did homework, went to karate or whatever, and then then went to bed. It was kind of a normal existence as far as I'm concerned. Maybe it was messed up in a bunch of ways that I don't really realize, but yeah, I think it's normal, mostly. What was their hope for your future? I know some parents are very liberal. They say, just do what you love. Other parents say, no, you will be a doctor or (laughs) you will follow in my footsteps. But what was your parents' position on that? Yeah, it's funny. Since I was a young child, my parents said, you will grow up to be a productivity expert. No, I'm just kidding. They, they were always uh, they were always pretty easygoing, uh, and they I think in a way they made sure that when I was facing a decision that I was making the decision that I thought I really wanted, and and not just the world wants for me. I think that's kind of a mistake a lot of us make when we choose our goals. Well, first of all. Not all of us choose our goals, (laughs) but those that do, the goals that we choose are often imposed on us from the external world. So especially in the Western world that overvalues money and status and, well, those things are so intertwined as to be inseparable from one another sometimes. Money, status, recognition, fame, you know, all these extrinsic variables. I think they've always tried to steer me a bit away from those towards more intrinsic things, like what I really wanted. So I originally wanted to become a teacher and they said, oh, that's great. Do co-op, you know, where you go into the classroom, make sure it's what you really like. And I did that and I thought, there's no way I want to be a teacher (laughs) after that experience. Not in a terrible way, but in just that it wasn't a good fit for me. What wasn't a good fit for you about it? I think the classroom management, you know, you spend a lot of time on that and not just kind of imparting. You think it's going to be a process of imparting wisdom and knowledge and earthly guidance to young, impressionable people, but it's really just trying to corral a bunch of people to focus on one iota of what you're saying often. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can see how that might drive someone to teach others then about how to focus Maybe. <laughs> and be productive. Yeah, so I guess I've kind of come full circle to that teaching, kind of, you know, wrapped around that a bit to get a business degree because I thought that was my second interest, second in the running. And then, yeah, back to teaching again, I, I guess a little bit. But yeah, they never, you know, through that process, never tried to sway me one way or another. It was always just kind of, okay, you know, sounds great if that's what you want to do. Right on. Well, I do want to tell you that your book, Hyperfocus, I really enjoyed and I appreciate that you've written this book. And I think the subtitle is perfect. So Hyperfocus, How to Be More Productive in a World of Distraction. And every day, right, it's like more and more we find new devices and new platforms and just new ways to amuse and entertain and distract ourselves. And even in the quarantine, when life seems to be slowing down in some ways, it's like distractions just find their way in. I think even in quarantine time, we're more distracted than ever. You know, there's an uncomfortable truth that many of us have to face, which is that when we have an absence of things to do, you know, we don't have to travel, we don't have to commute, we have a bit more time usually, unless, you know, some of us have kids at home, in which case we have two jobs instead of one now. But our work has this tendency to, and social media is the same way, to expand to fit how much time we have available for its completion. It's a phenomenon that in productivity circles is called Parkinson's law. This phenomenon where our work, where distraction often tends to expand to fit our time available for its completion. So this is why that saying, if you want something done, give it to a busy person exists because they're already moving in motion. They're moving at a clip where they're getting a lot accomplished. But, you know, we all have those days where we don't have as much to do, but yet we make that work take eight, nine, ten hours so that it fits that kind of box that we work inside of. And I think that's, you know, one of the virtues of focus, which is that our work doesn't have to take as long as it does. Because we all have those afternoons, you know, maybe it's the morning where we're first hunkering down with a nice, fresh, hot cup of coffee, and we sit down in front of the computer, in front of a writing pad, whatever we're doing, and we just work. And we get more done in one or two hours than we get accomplished in an entire day or two of unfocused work, maybe when our smartphone is nearby, maybe when we have a lot of mental chatter when we have a lot to organize in our days, in our life, in our head. And yeah, it's, it's, I think, you know, that intensity of concentration, which I call hyperfocus, you can call it whatever you want, but that deep focus, the deep work, the deep concentration, the hyperfocus, it's one of the most valuable ingredients in not only getting things done, but also living a good life. Like no conversation will be as meaningful as the one you devote 100% of your attention to. No burger would be as delicious as the one you eat with 100% of your attention, as opposed to like the great, delicious, shitty burgers for us that we scarf down when we're on a road trip with like a quarter of our attention because we're listening to a podcast and trying to drive and have a conversation at the same time. So that idea of managing our attention well is, I think, not only like a great productive thing, but a beautiful thing when it comes to the lives that we live. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed and appreciate about this book is how it does come back again and again to attention and to really being presence. And these words in some ways are interchangeable. Of course, they're not the same or they'd be the same word. But I remember learning from, and I was thrilled to learn about your meditation and your Buddhist background, which in a way doesn't surprise me at all, though it might not be obvious to someone, you know, from the outside. 
But I remember learning from Sadhguru when he talked about if we really want to deepen our experience of life, mm. the only way to do that is by deepening the quality of our attention. Yeah. And that was a message that came through really clearly in your book. And I think a lot of us wonder like, why is my life not working? Like, why are my relationships crappy? Why am I not, you know, producing the results I want at work or things like this? Yet we often walk around like living half awake. Yeah. And, you know, I, I look at this over the course of a lifespan. So let's say we live 90 years. Let's be generous. Let's give ourselves a few more years than the average in the US and Canada. Well, we sleep for a third of it. So right now, our life is down to 60 years. Our mind wanders for half the day, actually 47% of the time. And so that cuts off another 30 years. So we have 30 years of engagement. But when we're engaged, we're often bouncing between things, which leads us to remember less. So maybe we're multitasking for about half of that time. Whoa, our lifespan is now down to 15 years. That's 15 years to live a good life when we don't have that depth of concentration. And we ask ourselves questions these days like, why is time moving so fast? You know, quarantine life, that's something different. You know, there's all kinds of variables that we're stirring up into one concoction that's making time seem like a just a distant phenomenon. But I think like the fact that our smartphone technology, that we're chopping up our attention into tiny little bits throughout the day, that's leading us to remember less, first of all, because we can't deeply process what we're doing. But it's also in that weird way affecting our lifespan because we don't have as much time to experience the lives that we're living. We're kind of fast forwarding through some moments. We're multitasking through other moments. We're wandering and daydreaming, which isn't always a bad thing when we do so purposefully, but we're unintentionally daydreaming through other moments. We're doing work that we don't want to do in other moments. So we have to ask ourselves, how much, how long are we actually living here if we get these 90 years and it's not 90 years it's a fraction of that amount but luckily we get to choose what that fraction is when we manage our attention well yeah it's a super interesting way to think of it as you just articulated it and as i hear it laid out that way then i i also think and some of this is maybe implicit in what you're saying but i think there's still a differentiator here as well which is the quality of that time so not only do we segment it down, I think we probably also diminish the intensity or the value or the quality of it. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I would go so far as to say that the quality of our attention is a key determinant of the quality of our lives. So if our mind is constantly wandering against our will, this is our brain. This is our brain right for the lifespan that we have. If we can't control our mind to be able to focus on something, what can we control? <laughs> and, you know, we can't control much in the lives that we live. We can control an awful lot, but we should be able to tell our mind to focus on something and then have it focus on something. That's a skill that we should have as a human being that has this brain that we use to work and live our lives. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the mind wanders or our minds wander 47% of the time. Yeah. But how does that compare against people who employ the strategies and tactics that you teach, does that reduce that or does it just enhance our awareness? Like, where is that line? Yeah. So there are some curious ways of allowing our mind to wander less. And it speaks to this idea of attentional control. And it's funny you mentioned meditation off the top because there are very few ways that we can actually build 
our attentional capacity, especially with regard to how much we can process and store in every given moment. It also referred to as our working memory capacity. But you know those brain, have you ever used a brain training app? I have a friend who shared one that he swears by, and I just think that is pseudoscience. I'm not going to bother. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I haven't. Well, I was like really curious about these apps. So I dug into the research, the science behind it. Turns out they're all full of BS. Like they, they, I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> the, the apps, like, like they help you with what they're working to help you with. Like if something's leading you to focus for longer or whatever, the app does help you with that until you stop using the app. Yeah. It only works as long as your dependency is intact. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dependency. It's nicotine. It's the digital equivalent of nicotine uh, are these apps. But there is one technique that does help us to train this attentional capacity, this attentional control that we have. And that really is mindfulness. That really is meditation. It's the only thing that I've found in research that you know both helps us to focus for longer, and leads our mind to wander less because we have greater attentional control, but also expands our working memory capacity, which is how much we can store in the moment. But I think the the and I'm going to try to pull numbers during this interview from the spreadsheets in my mind, and it's not always accurate, so don't quote me precisely, but from the best of my recollection, when we have a consistent meditation ritual, it, it can expand our working memory capacity by upwards of 40%. So we can hold 40% more information in the moment. We can connect 40% more information. We can hold 40% more variables. We can, we can see conversations with greater depth. We can devote more attention to our experiences. We can just process the world around us with more depth and clarity than we would be able to achieve otherwise without a meditation practice. Do you meditate? I know you're excited by the idea. I'm guessing you do. <laughs> I do. I do. It's changed my life. Yeah. You know. You probably noticed this firsthand then. Oh, I do. And I say this, I actually, when I talk about meditation, it is something that I teach meditation and mindfulness both. And when I share from my experience, what I've gained from it, I do recognize the benefit you're saying, and I don't mean to diminish that at all because it's significant. But the biggest thing I've got from my meditation is I think it's helped me realize what an asshole I am. Oh, <laughs> you know, like when I'm <laughs> like when I'm being unkind, or malicious, vindictive, petty, yeah. And it doesn't mean I'm not those things. It just means I'm more aware when I am. Yeah. No, trust you know? me. You're kind of an asshole. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but also what you're saying, yeah, I mean, between less stress and... Yeah. But it's also like, I think that touches on another, it's the classic idea of metacognition, right? Yeah. Just thinking about thinking, having a double loop around our thoughts and around our actions is a primary benefit of a meditation practice, right? Like we don't just do... We do, then we think, then we do, then we think. And having that double loop of thinking after we do, or before we do, if we get good enough at meditation, we can realize, oh, wait, you know, I was kind of an asshole to brilliant there. Maybe I should dial that back or whatever. We're able to become a bit better of a person because of the fact that we don't just do, do, do. We do reflect, do reflect, do reflect, and we get better at everything. And, you know, I recently, and this is kind of outside this because the project isn't even out yet. I think it'll be published in January. It's getting a scoop. I haven't announced anything yet, but I have written a book for a site called Audible. It's an audiobook website 
And they have something called Audible Originals. So much like Netflix is Netflix Originals, Audible is Audible Originals. And I wrote a book on meditation and productivity for an Audible Original because I just think the benefits of productivity for a meditation practice are just so, so profound. I calculate in the book that for every minute we spend meditating, we make back nine in how much more productive and focused we become. How do you get to that? How do you arrive at that number? Yeah, so I made a bunch of calculations that you know I discuss in the project, which isn't out yet, so people can't even check my work. But you know, it comes from things like the fact that when we're distracted or derailed completely in our work, it takes us about 25 and a half minutes to get back on track after we do. It's based on ideas like the fact that our mind wanders for about half of the time. So if we can decrease that, and I use conservative estimates by just five or 10%, we make back an inordinate amount of focus. If we notice that, again, it's that metacognition that we're about to distract ourselves before we do. We can just eliminate one 25-minute distraction throughout the day. By God, if we meditate for 25 minutes, we've already earned back the time. That's not to account for the fact that we procrastinate less because we're aware of the thoughts that are flying through our head. And, you know, procrastination on a very real level is a visceral reaction to something that we don't want to do. That's, you know, kind of giving into the self-talk, the self-monologue in our head. So we are able to step back from that. There are just so many countless, countless benefits. And plus we have that greater attentional capacity by about 40%. If we can process 40% more in every moment because we have a consistent meditation practice, that'll make us back hours. You know, this nine minutes is a very conservative estimate. I really do believe that. And mind you, this is not to say that if you have an eight-hour day, you can spend seven hours and 59 minutes <laughs> meditating. And in that one minute, you can make back like at 10,000 years in extra productivity. There is a diminishing point, and it does depend on how much of our work, A, requires deep concentration, but B, is knowledge work so that we do with our mind instead of just repetitive things we do with our hand and the automatic parts of our brain. But the more you rely on your mind to do good work, the more you need meditation and mindfulness to be in the arsenal of productivity strategies you deploy. And that's why I talk about it in Hyperfocus, the book you mentioned. That's why I wrote about it in my first book, The Productivity Project. It's so, so critical. And any chance I get, I just want to say, like, do this, please, everybody, because the benefits really are that profound. Yeah, that's my experience as well. And in addition you know, to that, the experience we have, right? So there's, again, the less stress, the more enjoyment combined with, I think we're more aware and therefore focused on what truly matters or what we yeah. really want or value and not just lost in activity or busyness. Yeah. Or our mind. That's right. So, okay. And this thing too, cause I, when I asked you about that, you know, the amount of time our mind spends wandering, and then we talked about how we can expand that. And you talked about meditation. You introduced me to a concept that I recognized instantly, but I don't think I was aware of before I read Hyperfocus, which is attentional space. Yeah. The term attentional space. Will you talk about what that is? Yeah. So in any moment, we can kind of check up on what's in our mind. So what is occupying our attention? So maybe right now, listener 
if you're, you know, maybe you're going for a walk, maybe you're doing chores around the house. You know, I, I don't know about you. I rarely just listen to a podcast. I always find myself cleaning or cooking or going for a walk through nature at the same time, just because it makes the experience more meaningful to me and more fun. And so in this moment, I got to speak right to the listener now, instead of you. Right now you're doing something and something's occupying your attention, right? The podcast is occupying most of it. Maybe there's something else you're doing out of autopilot that you have to kind of intervene every once in a while to think about it. And maybe your attention goes from one thing to another. Maybe you're doing something habitually that you're kind of focusing. So in any moment of any day, the experiences that we're engaging in are occupying some of our attention. And I call our working memory capacity, as I referred to it once on the show already, this is what that occupies. Our working memory capacity, I just wanted a nicer name for that, so I called it attentional space. But essentially, at any part of the day, we can think, okay, what is on my mind right now? We can kind of check up on what's on our consciousness, and that's our attentional space. So the idea that we have a limited amount of attentional space, I think is a powerful one, because we like to treat our mind as though we have an unlimited amount of attention to give to the world around us. So, you know, we have a conversation, then we pick up our phone and we realize our attention is kind of at capacity, but bouncing back and forth between these things, we kind of live a life of excess attention where we don't do either thing properly. And I think by managing this space thoughtfully, we're able to get a lot more done and get a lot more meaning out of our days too, and have somewhat of an ability to reflect on the things that we're doing as we're doing them and kind of work a bit more intentionally at the same time. So our attentional space is quite limited. You know, we're constantly bombarded by information that surrounds us. And I think billions of bits of information, the studies show, I think one study done by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book Flow, he found that we're bombarded by billions of bits of information every second. But in any second, we can consciously only focus on 40 of them. So these bits are visual information, they're spatial information, they're thoughts in our head, they're things we can do, there's mental chatter, there's there's just so much. There's the sights, the sounds, all our senses. We can only consciously focus on 40 of them. And so I think this is the power of managing our attention, is A, realizing how limited our capacity to focus and be aware is in the first place, while making an effort to expand how much attention we have to give to the world around us, which I chat about in the book, you know, investing in our happiness, investing in meditation, things like that. But it's also recognizing that we have very limited amount of attention to give to the world around us. We can focus on one complex thing at a time. We can focus on a few simple habitual things, especially when they take advantage of different parts of our brain. And so this is why, you know, a podcast, which we hear, pairs very well with doing the dishes, which is the physical motor activity. And so by managing this space well and realizing we have a very limited amount of it, we're able to live just a lot more simply, honestly, when we have the opportunity to do so, but meaningfully and productively. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I love too, the way that in the book, you provide a graphic, yeah. you know, this visual to help us picture the attentional space is finite, you know, for all practical purposes as a human being, there is a limit to what our attention can hold. But then beyond that, you also introduce something that, you know, I'm a huge believer in the power of intention and intention setting. But I love what you talk about when one is hyper-focusing, if I understand this right, so you can correct or add, but 
when one is hyper-focusing in that moment, only two things should be in that intentional space, right? Will you talk about that? And intention is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So after we've chosen to work on something, to spend our time on something, we still have a limited amount of attention to give to whatever we choose to experience, to whatever we choose to engage in. And I think there's only at that point, two things that are worth occupying our attention. There's the thing that we're focusing on and there's our intention to focus on that thing. And so this is another benefit of managing our attention more simply is when we do, we have fewer things that occupy our attentional space. And so we have room to fit an intention to accomplish something. And, and that keeps us on track because we realize that a lot of things are trying to trip us up. There's internal distraction and external distraction. The research actually shows that the distractions that we choose to not always choose, that we automatically engage with over the course of the day, about half of them come from our external environment. So somebody coming up and say, hey, can you have this report for me? Or an IM coming up or something like that. But the other half come from us. So <laughs> there are the times where we pick up our phone and distract ourselves, where we go to the washroom and we sit for a bit too long because we're bouncing around between news websites. These are the times that we choose to distract ourselves. But when we're able to hold an intention with what we want to accomplish alongside the work we're doing, I think this is the most powerful mode to work inside of. Intention, I think, is one of the most integral ideas to our productivity. I really do think attention without intention behind it, it's just wasted energy. We're just living on autopilot. We're working in response to the work that comes our way. Just like we chatted off the top, where we allow the priorities of the world around us to choose what our goals are, we so often also allow the priorities of whomever we work with, of the world around us, of social media, of all these things, to choose what we need to do and who we want to become and what we pay attention to in the moment. And so I think intention, if you look at what productivity means, you know, a lot of people when they hear the word productivity, they think of something that's so cold and corporate and all about efficiency and becoming like some, some guy or gal in like a suit and like boiling your life down to a spreadsheet. I think that's bullshit. I think productivity is about extracting more meaning and engagement out of our lives. And that's all about intention because how do you extract more meaning and engagement without choosing what you want to become meaningfully engaged with in the first place, right? Productivity is all about intention. Without intention, you can't have productivity, right? They can't exist without one another. You're just working on autopilot mode in response to the work that comes your way. So I think intention is, honestly, it's one of the things that makes us human, right? You know, animals don't plan for the future. They react, right? We need to stop reacting and start intending. Yeah. I love the way that you break that down. So thank you for that. And another intention, another type of intention, perhaps, that I also found really valuable from this was this idea of an implementation intention. Will you talk about that too? Yeah, for sure. So an implementation intention, instead of just saying, okay, I want to read this book today, you choose when and where and how you're going to be doing something. And so you actually think through the conditions that will precede something happening. And that might sound a bit weird, but so like, instead of saying, okay, 
this is just a book I have in front of me. I have Love for Imperfect Things, which is by Heyman Samin. I love his writing. He's a Buddhist monk. And so instead of saying, okay, read this, I might say, I'm going to read the book, Love for Imperfect Things, for 45 minutes after my morning coffee and until whatever. And so instead of just having a bland, vague intention, we actually come up with a plan for when, where, and how we're going to be doing something with the coffee in the morning with specificity. For 45 minutes. For 45 minutes, exactly. This is so huge for me, Chris, because, and I realize each of us is unique and we have different preferences and styles and things like that. So I know you know, on one hand, there's probably many people like me in this regard. And and there's people who are nothing like me in this regard, but I wake up in the morning and it's like, I can do everything and dang it, I'm going to, Yeah, (laughs) you know, or this quarter or this year. Yeah. But then what you're saying about an implementation intention, that's where the rubber meets the road. And now where the reality sets in and reality is not always pleasant, right? That it's, oh, I said, I'm going to do these 16 things, but the available time and my available energy it's not, I hate to admit limitation. I hate to admit limitation, but in this human spatio-temporal existence we find ourselves yeah. in, it seems to be a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of sucks. Like I, I look at my bookshelves and I think, man, if only I could live for a thousand years and I could read like 12 books at a time, but there's just too many books <laughs> to be able to read in the short lives we have. There's too many things to do as well. Implementation intentions are super, super powerful. One other thing I'll say on them is if you really want to do something, so maybe the book isn't the best example because I love his books. If you really want to do something, it's not as important to think through when, where, and how. Because you're going to be naturally motivated to do it, you're not going to need to like drum up the motivation in the moment. But for something like, I don't have a boring book on my desk here. I have some yarn that I'm knitting with. I have like a fountain pen thing because I'm really into (laughs) fountain pen. I'm weird, sorry. But it's like if I was really averse to drinking this thing of water or something. I don't, I don't even know. If I was averse to like coming up with a new tech setup here, then it would be far more critical to choose when, where, and how, because I'm not going to want to do it in the moment. So the things that naturally engage you, naturally motivate you, you don't need implementation intentions, but do deploy them for the things that you find aversive. So writing could be reading studies. That's an, that's one of mine <laughs> that I always have to choose, but yeah, it's really powerful. Are you really needing? Yeah. Is this a Canadian thing? No, it's a me thing. It's actually fine. So like mind wandering is, I've railed against it a lot on this episode, but it's honestly like, if you think back to when your best, most brilliant ideas strike you, you're rarely focused on anything. Your mind is wandering usually when you're doing something habitual. I call that mental mode scatter focus when we scatter our attention. And I try to integrate that into my day. So I just got some new yarn. It's a nice green kind of shade. That is a, that is um, a nice green. Gonna make some dishcloths. I like making dishcloths and I suck at making them. So don't pretend I'm some like great knitter, but <laughs> but I do like to knit because I find that it lets my mind wander. And I always have a notepad nearby when I'm knitting because ideas always arise. That's awesome. Well, I'm really glad that you brought us now. You've introduced this idea of scatter focus as well. I wonder how the book would have done if that had been the title instead. What do you think? (laughs) I have no clue. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think it would have sold more or less? Probably less. Probably less. Probably less. But it could have been one of those books that the cover is hyper-focused on one side and then you turn it over and backwards and it's scatter-focused. Oh, like that one face of Adele? 
I haven't seen that one, but I have some kids' books like that. Just just search for uh, Adele upside down face. There's a face where like she looks normal when the face is upside down. You can cut this out of the podcast, but people might actually be interested in this. Yeah. It looks like she's normal face, but then you turn the image over and all her facial characteristics are like weird and, and twisted. Interesting. Very highly recommended. Maybe we could put a link in the show notes. Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> it's not interesting. Why are you saying that? <laughs> yeah. It's a scatter, no, it focus, is. scatter focus. It's, yes. So earlier when we were talking about we were talking about focus and we were talking about mind wandering. There's, it's actually the same friend of mine who has uh, attempted to enroll me in his brain apps, his brain enhancement <laughs> apps. We have conversations from time to time about how frustrating it can be that we sometimes feel like we have to fight ourselves to do certain things. And thank you for that link. What am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say hyperfocus is awesome. And there's a time and a place for it, but there's also a time and a place to cease hyper-focusing. Yeah. If I understand, right? Oh, for sure. And this was a misconception I had going into the writing the book because I thought, okay, this will be great. You know, I have this focus project. I can figure out how to focus a hundred percent of the time and just focus, focus, focus. Automaton. Yeah. And yeah. have, you know, unlimited energy and somehow find that. But I realized along the way, very quickly actually into this project that focusing on things all day long is one of the worst things that we can do for our productivity. Honestly, one of the absolute worst because we only have so much of a mental capacity to focus. So we draw on the same kind of reservoir of energy that we use to make decisions, that we use to regulate our attention in other ways like that. We draw on that same reservoir when we want to focus on something. And so because we deplete this, there's some debate as to what this pool of energy is. You know, there's kind of, there was a phenomenon called willpower depletion where, you know, that's kind of been, you know, kind of debunked a little bit. So there's some debate for where this energy comes from. But because we only have so much of a mental capacity to focus throughout the day, it's critical that we take a step back and not just try to focus on things all day long and become this weird automaton, like you say, that's a recipe for burnout. That's a recipe for exhaustion. And, you know, there's always these two ways we have to measure our productivity, A, in the short run, but B, in the long run. And we tend to overfocus on the short run because we like the immediate benefits of productivity. But when we don't focus on the long run, we often lose out on a lot of meaning that a different calling or career would have provided us with. And we often get more burnt out because we're not doing things that naturally engage us or because we're doing too much, we're working too hard or too much at the same time. So it's so, so critical. Focusing on things all day long, one of the worst things we can do for our productivity. We need to take a step back. And when we do that, or maybe one way to do that is what you're talking about, scatter focus, right? So will you tell us what that is and why, like, why does it matter? So one analogy I love to use is if you look at how traffic moves down a highway, what allows cars to move forward isn't how fast the cars are moving as we might think, but it's how much space exists between the cars that allows the cars to move forward. I think our work, our life is the exact same way. We need a bit more space between the things we do throughout the day to just let our mind wander a little bit. Maybe we do something habitual. Maybe you go for a walk. Maybe you have a cup of coffee and just 
sip on the coffee. It's so simple, right? Coffee is delicious. It gives us energy. Why not enjoy that experience? Why would you want to do something else at the same time? You, you, know, you mean like without looking at my smartphone? I'm sorry, but you might have to not look at it for a little that's bit. It's terrifying. <laughs> it is because, no, you but know, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Like just to allow ourselves, although we might be engaged in some activity, yeah. not allowing ourselves to be distracted. By yeah. Do something by simple. Yeah. Do something that you love. Go for a run, go for a walk, knit, whatever you choose to do. Do something habitual that doesn't occupy your full attention and your mind will wander automatically, right? It'll wander to the things you have to get done. It'll wander to memories that you've had. It'll wander to information that you've forgotten about. It'll wander to conversations you need to have, to people you forgot to connect with, to ideas, to plans. It'll wander to your goals. We actually think about our goals 14 times as often when our mind is wandering versus when we're focused. 14 times as often. We think about the future when our mind is wandering 48% of the time, right? We don't think about the future when we're focused because we're in the present, right? We think about the past less than we might think. We think about the past around 12% of the time when our mind is wandering. Uh, we think about the present 28% of the time. So we wander to think about alternative approaches to what we're doing. So this is when like you're typing up the email to somebody and it's very delicate, it's political, it's fragile, and you can't think of a perfect way to phrase something. So you walk over to make a cup of tea or go for a little walk or a little break or something. And then along the way, the solution hits you. It's like, boom, that's the perfect way to phrase it. You run back to the computer, you rephrase it, you hit send and you saved a relationship perhaps, you know? It's this mind wandering that allows us to reflect on our lives, right? It's that double loop that we've talked about that mindfulness can give us in the moment, but this also provides us with that. But it also gives us ideas, so we plan a lot. So we plan, you know, because we think so much about the future, about 48% of the time. By the way, 48 plus 28 plus 12 doesn't add up to 100. It's because often when our mind is wandering, it's dull, it's blank, it's listless. But we plan so much, so we get a lot of plans when we do this. This is why when we take a shower, we basically are in the office already because we're thinking about everything on our plate that we'll have to get done that day, that week, that month, that year. This is why we plan so much around New Year's. I don't think it's the fact that it's a new year. I think that has something to do with it. It's a nice line in the sand. I think it's mostly to do with the fact that we are able to wander a lot more, that we're able to step back from our traditional environment and we scatter our thoughts a lot more. We enter into scatter focus more often. But what happens, and one of the beautiful reasons that we get so many ideas that arise to the surface of our mind in the shower, is that when we bounce between all three temporal mental destinations. We bounce from remembering the past, some information we read about then, to thinking about the future and some conversation we have coming up. Then we wander back to the present, to a problem that we face today. Then we accelerate to the future, to the past, to the present, to the future, to the present, to the past, bouncing between all places. We connect information from all three places automatically, right? This allows us to come up with ideas that we would never arrive at otherwise with focused concentration. So there's two types of creativity, divergent and convergent. So, you know, we need both approaches. We need to be able to focus. We need to be able to wander to find solutions to problems. But 
I've come up with so many great ideas, just letting my mind wander more, right? So we plan more, we come up with more ideas, and it's the rest, right? It's the fact that when we do something habitual that we love, we don't have to expend any attentional energy towards regulating our attention. So we let our mind rest, we let our mind be, and so it recharges for the next thing, right? We get all benefits without even trying, Yeah, right? It's great. It, it really is a beautiful thing. And when people get burned out, I mean, just I'm thinking about people in my life I know who seem to have reached a limit in their careers where they kind of hit a wall emotionally. And as I observe, and granted, I don't know the private details of their lives, you know, but I can see they seem to be in go mode a lot more than they're giving themselves this kind of time to reflect and relax and recharge. So yeah, that makes a lot of and, sense. And I really think that we're hard on ourselves when we do go, go, go. And when we burn out and we become harder on ourselves in periods of burnout, because not only do we feel like shit because we have no energy, but we also can't get things done. So we don't perform at the same level. But I think we need to move from a mental position in which we're hard on ourselves because of these things to a mental position wherein we realize that we deserve a break. It's not that we need a break. It's not that a break will make us more productive. It's not that a break will make us more creative and more thoughtful and plan more, even though all of those things are true. It's the fact that we deserve a break. And nobody out there is telling us that we deserve a break, especially ourselves. We're telling us ourselves that we need to work harder, that we need to accomplish more, that we need to live up to what people expect of us. But we deserve better from ourselves, right? That's, I think that's a mental posture we need to have, especially with regard to distraction. We're so tough on ourselves and we've gotten distracted when we lose those 25 and a half minutes of productivity because we've gotten derailed. By the way, that depends on whether distraction is internal and external. We're distracted for longer when we distract ourselves. But we're so hard on ourselves when we get into that state and we don't realize that this is just the way our brain is wired. We have a novelty bias embedded within our brain's prefrontal cortex by which for every new novel thing we direct our attention at, our mind rewards us with a hit of dopamine, that chemical of the anticipation of pleasure. Like, by God, it, we're rewarded. So every time we check Instagram, we get a hit of dopamine. We go over to email, we get a hit of dopamine. We bounce over to the news, we get another hit of dopamine. We bounce to Instagram again. Nothing changed, but we go again because we get another hit of dopamine. This is why we distract ourselves for 25 and a half minutes. And we don't realize that we deserve better. It's not the fact that we're distracted. It's the fact that when we need a break and when we take a break, we deserve from ourselves the ability to disconnect from focusing on things and just rest our mind a little bit. We deserve these things. Yeah. I love that view and the self-compassion in that. And I'm reminded of something I once read, Louise Hay, you know, the founder of Hay House Publications. And just, I never had the chance to meet her, but I understand I did hear her speak. And I know she was a really thoughtful woman. And she, in her book, You Can Heal Your Life, wrote about when she would coach people, even before they would talk about what the issue was. For her, it was always an issue of self-love. 
And that thing that you're talking about, about we deserve, but if we don't love ourselves or believe, you know, we're worthy, we're not as likely to give ourselves that gift. Even something as simple as food, right? Like sometimes we accomplish something and we say, okay, I'm going to like have a bunch of whiskey tonight and I go to order an extra large pizza. And then we wake up in the morning feeling like garbage. We're hungover and we're bloated and we feel like we're 10,000 pounds heavier than we were the day before. We deserve better from ourselves. And social media is the same way. You know, we say, okay, I need a break. I've accomplished a lot at work today. And so we bounce over to Twitter. Then we get depressed as hell about the state of the world. We check the news again, and that leaves us with another aftertaste that's just as putrid. We go over to Instagram and that's, we feel like it's a happier place, but really we're just full of more things to be envious about. We deserve better. Yeah. And only we ultimately can give ourselves. Yeah. Nobody's going to give it to us (laughs) except us. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Before we transition, I just want to be sure that I ask you about caffeine. Yeah. Will you talk about caffeine for a moment? Now, I just want to set this up by saying Tony Robbins, one of the most productive people I know of, doesn't use caffeine. Yeah. He's about the only productive person I know that doesn't. I rarely also have caffeine now. You still do the matcha thing? Sometimes, but less and less. I find that just when I wake up, an apple does as much as a cup of matcha. What I will say is not all caffeine vehicles are created equally. So some things like, you know, matcha, like you say, has L-theanine, which of course, when you have a cup of coffee, one of the main reasons, or caffeine of a different kind, like a black tea, one of the main reasons we get such a rush from that isn't just the caffeine, which makes us alert. It's an adenosine reuptake inhibitor. So it prevents our brain from becoming tired because we don't absorb denosine, which is a chemical that tells our brain we're tired. And so we kind of have alertness because of not the fact that it's stimulating, but because it gets rid of all the tired in us for a little bit. But we also get a lot of adrenaline from caffeine. And that's exhausting after a bunch of like, I started to view drinking caffeine as kind of like liquid stress almost. Liquid adrenaline. There's a disorder in the DSM-5 called the caffeine-induced anxiety disorder. That's really in the DSMV. Yeah, yeah, it is. Wow. It's um, and, <laughs> wow. and I honestly think, and I'm not a psychologist, so I should say that, but as somebody who has consumed a lot of literature and has consumed a lot of caffeine (laughs) in experimentation and whatnot. I honestly think, and in talking to a lot of people, enough people that I'm kind of at the point where I've accumulated enough anecdotes to be for those to be data, almost, almost, not yet. But I think caffeine-induced anxiety disorder is one of the most undiagnosed disorders out there today. In fact, if you have anxiety, if you feel like you're anxious, cut out caffeine. Try it for a month. It'll take you a week or two to not feel like garbage (laughs) because you're getting rid of a drug dependency that you have. Do you recommend replacing it with anything, any other substance or activity, or just go cold? I recommend a lot of exercise. I recommend doing this when you get sick because when you get the flu, and you cut out caffeine at the same time, you're, you'll just kind of transpose the crappiness you feel from cutting out caffeine to the fact that you're sick. And so you, it'll be like you're kind of the same and you'll kind of you know benefit in that way. But yeah, get a lot more exercise because I forget the exact science behind blood flow in the brain, but I think that that benefits. But also I like to do cold turkey because I like to feel 
how dependent I have become on something when I cut out caffeine. Because sometimes that's enough of a wake-up call to not fall back into the same patterns of dependency again. But if you want to do it gradually, because <laughs> for whatever reason, you just want to do it gradually, I recommend just starting out with different ratios every day. So if you make a cup of coffee at home, start with like 100% caffeine, then do 90 10 90% caffeinated, 10% decaf. Once you no longer feel anything from that, go 80, 20, 70, 30, 60, 40, 50, then keep dialing it down until you no longer have that same dependency. Or switch over to a different caffeine vehicle, one that doesn't have that same adrenaline rush that it gives you. So when you go from drinking coffee to green tea, green tea, matcha is my favorite vehicle for caffeine right now, because I haven't found anything better in the research, but it has L-theanine, which almost cancels out that adrenaline rush. So you get the effects of the adenosine reuptake inhibitor. So you don't feel as tired, you feel more alert, but without the adrenaline rush, that is a rush of stress to the body. Because like caffeine is telling your body to mobilize by increasing the adrenaline production in your body, but you mobilize in doing work, which isn't a physical activity. So you don't feel that level of satisfaction that we should feel after a deep physical exertion that should happen after such an adrenaline rush. So green tea is a much better vehicles for caffeine than coffee. But I think if you're going to consume it, consume it strategically instead of habitually, because you'll be able to consume it when you actually need the benefit from the caffeine. If you have anxiety, cut caffeine out just as an experiment, because I think you'll find it worthwhile. If you're an introvert and you have a highly stressful social situation, like a presentation, coffee or high caffeinated things might overstimulate you and make your performance suffer. But if you're an extrovert, you might benefit more from caffeine in situations like that. But I honestly think that the levelness of energy that we experience when we don't consume caffeine or other drugs for that matter is worth the pursuit. I really do. The consistency of your performance will trump the boosts and the drops over time, I think. Interesting. Interesting view. Thank you. Sorry, that was a lot crammed into that. Uh, hopefully that no, was helpful. awesome. I almost always ask writers about, you know, their caffeine related habits in the writing portion of the interview. But what do most people say? What do most writers say? I think about Donald Robertson, who wrote How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And he talked about when he went and wrote that book, he just drank like literally, he would take a small bushel of apples and a pots of black coffee to his little writing studio. And that was his whole, like his diet day in and day out. I was like, whoa, that's hardcore. Other people will talk about kind of what you've said. They don't use it. They don't like to be dependent on it, but many people do start their writing. It's kind of a reward for, you know, checking the email and showing up at the writing desk and something about having the latte and, you know, greeting the sunrise and sitting down, you know. So it seems to me that there is this correlation, you know, between cats and writers, not probably not a ma majority, <laughs> but caffeine and writers. And I think historically tobacco and writers, but that's oh, yeah. not, not so much today. Yeah. I do have nicotine gum every once in a while because the research and I'm not a doctor, so please don't follow any of my advice ever. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nicotine actually does provide a reasonable focus boost. It does have an addictive dependency so you do have to be mindful of that. And tobacco is, it's not 
healthy. It's full of carcinogens and, and all sorts of other things that you don't want to be putting into your body and into your lungs. But the nicotine gum just has the nicotine and whatever else is in gum. And so you can have the same effects of that focus boost and of that stimulation without as many downsides, at least. So it's something I, like I've been curious about that I chew every once in a while, but I don't do it too often because it is very very addictive. Yeah. Very yeah. Some scientists say that nicotine is a substance that only serves to make you dependent on nicotine. Wow. Yeah. Like sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I think the last question I have before we jump over is about what, if anything, have you changed your mind about that you included in hyperfocus or this is kind of a three-part question. So feel free to answer some or none of it. But what have you changed your mind about that is in the book? What did you learn that really surprised you? Or what have you learned since that you wish you had put in? Anything in that domain? I love that. That's a really good question. I will say that I knew everything I needed to know about focus before I wrote the book. So I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, one of the biggest things that I learned was that totally changed my mind about the subject was just how much attention matters. So I went into this because my first book was about productivity. I went into this thing, okay, I'll write a book about focus and get to the bottom of the science because I noticed how distracted I was after my first book came out. And so I thought, okay, you know, maybe I should get a handle on this. Maybe the advice that I was giving out about focus wasn't complete and maybe there's more to find out. So I'm going to figure out how to be focused and productive. But what I didn't realize, and this might sound weird, but I see everything that I write about through the lens of productivity, because I write about productivity. But it didn't occur to me that attention matters outside of the boundaries of just sheer productivity and getting things done. It didn't occur to me that by being able to regulate our attention better, our overall life satisfaction would go up. Didn't occur to me that by managing our attention better, we would become more creative. It's one of the best ways of becoming more creative. Didn't occur to me that we become happier when we manage our attention better. So the biggest lesson I think that I got out of the whole process was that attention matters with regard to productivity, but the state of our attention determines the state of our lives. The quality of our attention is a key determinant of the quality of our lives. It's bigger than productivity. It's bigger than work. This matters because in any moment of any day ever, we're either focused on something or our mind is wandering and we're disengaged. We're focused on something else. We're caught up in the thoughts in our head. And when we reclaim that control of our attention, we can choose what we focus on. We can do a better job of focusing on things. We save time and we live a better life. Right. So I think a key jump in writing that book was one from thinking about just productivity to a more holistic view of attention, which honestly I should have had from the beginning, but it took looking at the research to realize just how much attention matters. Wow. I think that's a beautiful answer. And as I hear you expound it, I think about something a guest of mine, Mark Nepo, the guy that wrote the book of awakening said, he talks about many writers are, they write about what they know This common writing advice where by contrast, he writes what he needs to know. And in that way, his books become his teachers. And it sounds like that's what <laughs> happened to you. Yeah. 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's exactly it. That's really cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay, coming down the stretch. So, Chris, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition to the enlightening lightning round. Yeah, sounds fun. Okay. Again, this is a series of brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim, for my part, is to ask the question and stand aside. All right. This is fun. What are they related to? Just everything? Variety. Wow. Variety, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, I'm game. Lightning rounds are the most fun thing in interviews. Yeah, and this one, for the first like 25 guests, it was just a lightning round. And then I started to go for a more enlightened group of guests. So now it's the enlightening lightning round. <laughs> you should do the standard one for me because I'm not that enlightened. Well, we'll find out. Yeah, I'll we'll be find the out. judge of that. <laughs> okay. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. All right. Life is like a... A bookshelf. Okay. Thank you. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? That sports are a socially acceptable outlet for xenophobia. Yeah. This is something I really, really believe. You know, you look at people watching sports and it's like they're a tribe where they hate somebody of a different jersey and you know there's these artificial boundaries that we create like the boundaries in sports are all artificial they're man-made but yet the emotions that people experience when they're watching sporting events are pure human visceral reactions that look kind of tribal. I'm sorry if you're a man of sports, but I, this is something that very few people agree with me on, but I can't really watch sports for this reason. Like I can when they're kind of a pure expression of work that has gotten somebody to a point where they excel at something that very few other people excel at. So if there's no fans, <laughs> I'm there, but when the fans are there, I'm not. Yeah. No, I, I do want to comment on that. And I thank you for sharing this view. It's an interesting perspective and not one that any guest has remarked on before. But, you know, my parents bought the Utah Jazz of the NBA back in 1985. So I've grown up. Oh, you know, this watching. is your world. Yeah. And one of the things I would see, I was eight years old when they bought the team. And so I've basically gone to every game, every home game for years and years. I and saw you I cringe see, when I said that answer. Well, no, it's it's not that at all. I recognize, like it resonated with me in, huh. in a very strong way because I would see people who would show up at the games and often they were intoxicated, you know? And it was like, I think people who hate their life in some way and that this is an outlet, just like you're saying, that this would be the place that they would just unleash fury that they probably didn't know how or feel safe directing at their boss or maybe their spouse yeah. or, or people who raised them or whatever. And in a way it was terrifying. And then as I got a little older, it was sad to me, you know? And then when you hear about fans that like assault other fans in the parking lot and stuff, anyway, I didn't, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, but I appreciate that. And I'm grateful to you for explaining that a little bit. Yeah. Now I'll get a bunch of people hating on me because I hate it on sports. That's how tribal sports yeah. are, but it's uh, I don't know. I, I really do believe that. Yeah. I think you're right. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? It would say, why do anything if you're not going to do it right? Okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Getting Things Done by David Allen. It's the book that first got me excited about productivity. It's a system that says that 
our head is for having ideas, not for holding them. So the more we get out of our head and into some system, the clearer we're able to think. So most of us have experienced this from a to-do list. So, you know, we get the to-dos out of our head into us. So we don't have to think about them. We get the same from a calendar as well. So we don't have to think about where we're going to be and when. But, you know, we can take this up a few notches. And that's what the book talks about. It's a dry book. And I'm friends with David. We've become friends over the years. I hope he won't mind me saying it's, you know, there's little fluff there, but it changed my life and it changed the lives of a lot of people that I know. And I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's changed my life. Oh, good. You know, even things like the two minute rule and the four D's and you the, know, it's, the, the really waiting for list is one of my favorite little nuggets from that. So, you know, we all have a to-do list, but we're also waiting on a lot of things from different people. You know, we order things from the internet that might be here in a month. We're waiting on that. We send an important email that we're waiting on a response from. These things all should go in one place. So I'm a big fan of making a waiting for list, which is one of the parts of that system that says, okay, these are the, I have mine broken down by the different contexts of my life. So business related things, personal things, book things, podcast things, things of all kinds of categorizations. But and it's, it's great. only valuable if you do the review. Yes, the weekly yeah. review or the periodic review. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's the part I didn't like. If you put these things on a list and never look at it, that's pointless. Yeah. Like you got to look <laughs> yeah. at it a few times a week, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, David Allen. He is like an OG of this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, field. That's pretty amazing. And by the way, this reminds me. I'm commenting more on these answers than I typically do in lightning no, round. No, it's good. But I was horrified when, in reading Hyperfocus, I was reminded that some people use their email inbox as the place where they manage their to-dos. Yes. It's like, oh my yes. gosh, people do that. Yes, that's pretty common, actually. <laughs> it's more common than anyone who is productivity-minded would want to believe. Yes, yeah, get the to-dos out of your email inbox for crying out loud. Serious. <laughs> and then what are you currently reading? I know you held up that book earlier. Is this what you're reading now or something also? Something I, I am reading, yeah, Love for Imperfect Things kind of like a little bit. I, I'm reading Invisible Women, which is about how women are underrepresented in data. So, you know, the way we collect data, everything from like crash test dummies are designed around the body of a man to just simple things like how the world is designed around men because the data is by men for men. So it's like a male default world that we live in, but we have two sexes. So that's one. And Factfulness by Hans Rosling, which is about the current state of development around the world, which is far more optimistic than the media makes it out to be. I, I think just 500 million people now are living in extreme poverty, which is, it's lower than it's ever been. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's still 500 million people, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's still, so. still a lot of people. But if you look at the trend lines of where things are going, like we tend to focus on the negative as opposed to the trend line of things. So if we're at 500 million people now, and we used to be at 3 billion, by God, you know, that's a good number in the greater context of things. No number is an island. It exists within the broader trend, broader curves. It's incredibly eye-opening of a read, just in terms of overall trends. And also a Stephen King book called Four Seasons, I think, or no, I'll pull up the book. But it's a book of short stories that he wrote, including the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, right on. Okay, thank you for that. Question number five, and this question harkens back to the Different seasons. Days. When we were all, oh, different seasons, <laughs> Stephen so King, different seasons. People want to okay. It's very good. Thank you. Sorry. So no worries. This question is about the good old days when we traveled 
frequently oh. and fearlessly. Yeah. But I'll phrase it this way. You've traveled a lot in your life. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Yeah. So in normal non-pandemic times, I'm on the road 60% of the time in hotel rooms and various planes, trains, automobiles, and so on and so forth. My favorite tactic when it comes to packing is to have a pack list that I refer to every single time. So I have an app called Text Expander, which is, it's a Mac app, but I think there's Windows equivalents as well. So what you do is you type a little snippet of text and that expands into whatever you pre-program into the application. So I type the words P pack list, all one word. And what that does is that expands the text so that it has everything that I could possibly need to pack ever. It has the things that I would need to pack if I flew internationally. It would have the things I need to pack or just think about if I'm flying to a country I haven't been before, like visas, vaccinations. It has things I need when I travel for work, things that I travel if I'm going for a camping trip even. And what I just do is I erase the items that I don't need so I have a complete list of everything that I need to pack. So much of the mental baggage that comes along with travel, I've realized, is the thinking that happens around the traveling experience. And that's probably the case with everything that we experience, right? Most of the work is in the thinking around the thing. But I think especially with stress of travel, that's an especially strong one. So that's my biggest strategy. Honestly, it saved me so, so much time. Awesome. Thank you for that. Text expander. Okay. Mm-hmm. So question number six, what is one thing you have started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Oh, I think stop drinking caffeine every day. You know, I'd be lying if I'd said I didn't have any at all, but in the last few months, I'd say I've cut out caffeine almost entirely and I'm calmer, more easygoing, more relaxed, less stressed out, less anxious. I don't know if that's an age well thing, but it's definitely a live well thing and probably age well, given it helps with calm and and anxiety. Yeah. Awesome. Question number seven, what is one thing you wish every American knew? Every American or every citizen of the world? (laughs) I I love this question knowing not all my guests are American. So let's stay with that. Okay. I wish every American knew how to separate fact from feeling. Because I think a phenomenon that at least I see a lot being a bit removed as a Canadian right now is that there are a lot of feelings that are disguised as facts in the US that are often called fake news, alternative facts, whatever you want to call it. They're really just feelings. And I think if those, and I can't speak on behalf of any American, but I think if some people in, in the US could do a better job of identifying facts, identifying feelings, and discussing the two ideas separate from one another, the dialogue would be more constructive. It would be more accommodating of people that are rightfully angry, but that feel like they're being left in the past. I think that's what I would say. But I might be wrong. I probably am wrong, but I feel this phenomenon that there's a lot of feeling disguised as factual information is one that needs to go. First of all, I don't think you're wrong. And I don't think you can be wrong about what you wish every American knew, if it's any (laughs) benefit to you. (laughs) But I'm also thinking about a book, Esther Perel. I heard her 
recommend, and I can hardly believe I'm drawing a blank on it right now, but she said it's a book that informs all of her work. I know the author's passed away now. It's not crucial conversations. It's, but it talks about this exact thing about how with every statement, there's always a feeling behind it. And when we conflate those, the trouble, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Anyway, so thank you for that. I'm really curious what that book is that she I recommends. I want to find it. I've, yeah, I've find it because I, I want to read it. It's, I love her work. The question that opens the book is, what is it that disconnects us from... The whole book explores this two-part question. What is it that disconnects us from our compassionate nature? Hmm. The second part is, how can we remain connected to our compassionate nature? Okay, so that was seven. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? There's a quote from a minister that I don't remember his name, but it went something along the lines of like sharing quality attention with someone is virtually indistinguishable from love. And I really do think that, I think it was Gary Bishop. I might have that wrong from the spreadsheet in the mind, but I think that idea is so powerful where love is quality attention. It's beautiful. Yeah. You include this in the book, David Augsburger, ah, that's right. a Baptist minister has said, being hurt is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Hey, I got it like 25% correct. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. The last one here in the lightning lightning round is around money. Oh. Aside from compound interest, <laughs> what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? That spending less is the best way to save more. And that seems so, I guess, obvious maybe, but it's kind of like the way that you sleep in as an adult is to go to bed early. I think just as, as, as that's true. Actually, I might change that a bit. I might modify that a bit to say that, and this is a force that I actively try to fight against, is that of lifestyle inflation. And so as I've spoken more about my books and sold more copies and all that stuff, you know, the lifestyle that or how much money we have tends to inflate. And we need to make sure that our life doesn't inflate to match how much money we make. You know, always living below that point. I try to live as frugally as possible while not depriving myself of things so that I can, you know, kind of strike that balance between long-term enjoyment of whatever I happen to earn and short-term enjoyment of whatever I happen to earn. So like there's a part of me when it comes, I think a lot about money. There's a part of me when it comes to money that's always thinking, okay, what if I live to 100 and what if I die tomorrow? Like, will I regret how I spent my money if both of those things were true? I feel like I'm always trying to optimize my spending, my saving for those two people at the same time. But I think that's the way we all should be living our life with one foot in the present, one in the future. I think that's such a beautiful view. What a great question. And not just about money, right? But how we treat other people and how we engage in recreational activities and yeah. eat, you know? So yeah. thank you for that. Exactly. Really yeah. Cool. And you know, I'll just say this here too. I think about this a lot as well, because I did lose a brother unexpectedly about five years ago. And I often think about, you know, when we went to his home or going to his office and he left stuff thinking he was coming back, you know? And if we knew he wasn't coming back, I think things would have been discarded or tidied or whatever, or completed. And I realized, well, that could be me. That could be anyone. Yeah. And one story that stuck with me 
to this day. And I remember my mom telling me this when I was a lot younger, but she shared a story of somebody that she worked with that was the cheapest person. So some people are frugal. Then you get the people who are cheap. <laughs> this fellow yeah. was cheap. And so he wouldn't spend a dime. He would always ask, like, if he was owed 10 cents, by say he would ask for 10 cents. Like, he wouldn't want to pitch in if somebody's birthday was at the office. And like, because he said, no, I, I, sorry, I just don't do that. He never spent any money unnecessarily, anything like that. So he saved his entire life, didn't spend a single dime. And one day he retired. And the very next day after that, he died of a heart attack. I think about that a lot because I think, what if I had a heart attack or whatever and dropped to the floor tomorrow? What if that happened? Would I regret anything? But also, what if I live to 100? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great, great question. Okay. And question number 10 is a gimme is oh. uh, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, of course, they can go to Amazon or to their local bookstore, which yeah. hopefully they do, their local independent bookseller. Yeah. But what would you have them do? Oh, man. Yeah. Pick up the book from a local business, you know, support a local business if you can. So the books, I always say plug in my stuff. Hyperfocus is the one that we were talking about. The Productivity Project is the other one. They're out in 20 languages now, which is super cool. Congrats, um, man. That, yeah, it's, it's so cool to get the translations. I always love seeing what they come up with for the cover. I should like post images of the cover, but I feel I'm the only one interested in this stuff. I don't know if people are actually interested. But yeah, so that's where you can find the... And my website is called alifeofproductivity.com. That's where I write about productivity and... Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Chris underscore Bailey. I don't tweet that much. And I think I'm on Instagram, but I, I don't know what my thing is. And you've got a <laughs> ton of valuable and free content at alifeofproductivity.com. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. My goal is to kind of create an imbalance with what I put out there. So, Oh, and now your podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot. I always forget. I do a podcast with my wife and it's called Becoming Better. We're on a little summer hiatus because it's the summer and we want to be outside. <laughs> awesome. Because <laughs> that's good. the thing. When you have a podcast, you can just take off whenever you want, I guess. No, probably not. That's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I will say this here. I know we're coming down the stretch on the interview. As a way of saying thank you for sharing very generously of your time and your experience and your wisdom, I have gone online to kiva.org and I have made a $100 microloan to an entrepreneur in Vietnam named Chung. So a woman who will use this money, she's 45 years old, married with two small children, and she will use this money to buy more fruits and vegetables to sell. Hey, nice. She can uh, do the coffee and the apple thing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's she's, awesome. She's Thank be all you. Set. Okay, so the final part of the interview here, just a few questions related to the creative process and related to writing. Oh, yeah. And then maybe one or two about marketing or promotion. Yeah, for sure. You love the Oxford comma. Yeah. <laughs> and the M dash. Yeah. What is that about? I don't know. I feel like sometimes care about things that other people, like I love coffee rituals with decaf coffee. I love mechanical keyboards as well. I love fountain pens. Like I, and I love M dashes and I love Oxford commas too. Oxford commas are, I think, kind of a necessity, honestly. It's, 
I don't have enough in my arsenal to fight for the Oxford comma or to fight against it, but I honestly think it's more elegant in terms of separating up a sentence. M dashes I probably overuse. I think the bigger question with an M dash is do you put a space around the M dash or no space? What team are you on? No space. I'm on team no space as well. It always... I can't stand it. So I write for a site called CNBC sometimes, and they take whatever I've written. And the only thing they change is they add a, well, they come up with a new title that's sometimes like kind of weird and link baity. But they also, sorry, CNBC, <laughs> but they also add more space around the M dash, which I don't think should be there. Like it exists to tie together a sentence. It's like a beautiful tie between one part of the sentence and the other. So I'm on team no space, like keep the tie alive, keep the string alive. Definitely on the Oxford comma team too, which I think most people would be. I just think in our internet age and where we're looking for brevity and concision that I like to remove the comma because it's just one less character or one less element in a sentence. You're overthinking it, man. (laughs) You might be right. You might be right. All right. Well then on that topic, what's your favorite font? Like as you're writing, do you have a preference of what you're writing with? What a question. I love this question. Mm, There are so many. Okay, Lato is wonderful. I usually write my books in Helvetica, which is, it might sound weird kind of going with a sans serif for writing, but I'm a fan of Helvetica. Plus it's the default and it's kind of nice. It looks good on the Mac. On a Mac. My default is Cambria on a Mac. Really? Huh. I don't even have... Oh, because you're writing in Word. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's Microsoft's default font. So I write in text edit. I write my books in text edit, like the simple text editor that comes default on the Mac. And the default's Helvetica there. I also really like Georgia. I I like writing with Georgia if I'm writing more of a stylistic piece or something. If I'm writing for the New York Times, I'll write in Georgia or Times New Robin just because I feel fancier (laughs) doing that. Yeah, yeah, Georgia, Helvetica... Sometimes courier, honestly, sometimes courier when I'm writing something where the spatial differences between lines matters because it's a monospaced font. But yeah, usually Helvetica New. Yeah, great question. What a good question. Well, Well, I realize that when it comes to tools of productivity, that how it feels to us really does matter, yeah. right? If we're going to stay with it, if we're going to enjoy the experience, that kind of thing. And I think I really first started to get that when I read Making Ideas Happen by Scott Belsky. Oh yeah. And yeah. he talked about how, whether it was people using Moleskin notebooks or Evernote or whatever, it was like totally, people had all these different ways to be productive. And although there were principles, one of the commonalities was honor your style and preferences. Mm. Right. And so that was just one thing I was curious about. Yeah. I will also say just as a side note, I love cranking up the size of the font when I'm writing. So I write with like a 14, 15, 16 point, just because I feel like I'm writing more, even though it's total BS. Interesting. On that note, talking about, you know, like a volume of writing. Yeah. When you have a project like a book or even a post, do you, I know you advocate things like the Pomodoro method and blocking out, determining how long your hyper-focus period will be. But do you also personally aim for a word count or anything measurable like that as you go? What I do is I always print out a trend line that I post on the wall of my office and I chart my word count relative to that trend line. And so I have a way of kind of calibrating how much I write every day around that trend line because I want to stay roughly close to or above it. 
So say I'll need to write 90,000 words for a book project nine months from now. So by the first month, the line will be at 10,000 second, 20, 30, and so on and so forth. And every day, I'll do my current word count relative to that trend line. I'll update a second line on that chart for that. So I can make sure I'm on track with regard to the word count. Something else I do that's kind of unrelated to the question, but related to word count is I come out with like detailed, detailed notes for each book that I write. So I'm working on a book, well, we haven't announced it yet, so I I won't say what it's about, but it's with Viking and Penguin Life as well. And I'm just at the note stage for the project, but I just did a word count and I have 24,161 words of notes for this book, broken down into the precise chapters that the book will have. And so what I'll do for figuring out the length of the chapters is I'll look at the relative proportion of notes that I have for each chapter and have a target word count for each chapter that is the same proportion of the word count for the book. And so, in other words, if a chapter has 10% of my notes and ideas, that'll take up 10% of the book so that the informational density is relatively consistent throughout the book. So that's something that I've done for the books as well that I really enjoy doing. I find that to be a really nice way of A, making sure the thoughtfulness is consistent throughout the book, and B, just kind of charting the progress. Because if you can write the first chapter with the notes that you have, you won't kind of run out of steam by chapter 10 if you're working that way, I think. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And when I hear this, I'm reminded how something like writing a book is a blend of logic and creativity. You know, and there's very much this methodical and analytical part that I'm going to do it. I'm going to break it down and do it this way. And then there's a creative part of filling in that space. So maybe even in some, I don't know, metaphysical views of a blend of the masculine and the feminine, you bring in the structure and then you're filling it. Yeah. So on that topic, you talk about notes and I think that's about how many notes you had. If I'm remembering for hyperfocus too, you talk about like, I think it was 25,000 words of disorganized yeah material that you kicked around for a long time yeah that was a fun process (laughs) kicking around Yeah. so what's that like is you're coming across articles and research papers and you're having your own ideas and stories how are you capturing and organizing those in one big long document so what i'll do is so this is the 20 whatever i said i closed the little word count window it (laughs) it's at the point where i have like a special script because text edit doesn't do word count by default. So I have a special script that I programmed. It's a system extension because I'm a big nerd that does a word count. And it took a few seconds to run. So I'm not going to run it again because I don't want to like <laughs> hold up the show basically. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll read a few studies. I might collect a few notes from the studies. Then I'll go on a walk and think about those ideas and jot down any ideas that I have. Sometimes on my phone, if I bring it, it's disconnected or on a little notepad in my pocket. And I'll just walk through nature and maybe listen to some music. Doesn't matter what it is, but just kind of let the mind wander a little bit. Then I'll take those notes, put them in the document. And once I get to the point where I'm able to start connecting ideas to one another, I'll put them in kind of some logical sequence and begin to kind of divvy up chapters. And usually at the beginning, 
feeling those are really rough and those change and they're deleted and they're moved and things are combined and separated that make sense and don't make sense. And many times throughout this process, in addition to looking at things digitally, you just need a break from the screen. Like who the hell wants to look at 26,000 words? So I'll print out the words on double-sided paper in teeny, 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 tiny font. I'll take my fountain pen to just have a tea. Before, in the olden days, I would go to a coffee shop and just have headphones on and hunker down in front of this outline and move things around and say, move this to this section because we see things differently from a different approach when they're analog versus when they're digital. So, And then go back, integrate those notes into the document, read more studies, go on more walks, collect more information, collect more ideas, take longer showers, take baths, make notes in those, knit some more, make some notes doing that, talk to people, make notes from that, and just kind of keep going with that, print it off a few more times, rearrange a few more times till you have a book. When did you first know you were a writer? I, I don't know if I know I'm a writer yet. It's like the way that I express what I feel I need to. Like, I've never really identified much with a lot of people might say this with like labels like that. Like, oh, I'm an author, oh, I'm a writer. It's just like, I want to get an idea out into the world. And if somebody is fascinated by the stars, they learn astrophysics, they learn mathematics, they learn things to express. If somebody's really interested in development, my wife's a development economist. She learns all these big data programs that I can't even begin to understand. I'm so interested in productivity and just like the science of being human and becoming a better human. And so I got it right. I was talking with a friend yesterday whose dad was a professional musician, somebody you might even recognize, but he said his dad told him, musicians don't choose to be musicians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. like you're saying, you just have this thing and you want to express it. Yeah. That's what happens. That's beautiful. Okay. Well, man, I could go another, at least another hour, but yeah. I know we're not going to. So I want to ask two final questions. And I thought I would ask, I do want to ask, what have you learned that has served you well about successfully marketing a book, hmm. selling a book? I think the team that you have around you when marketing a book matters so, so, so much, right? Because we become so immersed in what we write that we often don't have the perspective of what will resonate with people, what people will find valuable, what's most topical. And so having a team of marketers that you trust or other authors that you love how they've marketed things or other people that you respect in how they communicate their products, what they enjoy doing. That I think is in a league all of its own. So the best marketing decisions I've ever made or that it looks like I've made have been made by people much smarter than me at marketing. (laughs) And I have a marketing degree. That's my background. I have a marketing and management degree, maybe management more so than marketing, but marketing is still in there. And that's the most valuable thing I could tell you is surround yourself with people who are so much smarter than you at marketing because we should be pouring our energy into putting out good work that helps people out. And marketing should be something we do and a way through which we can discuss the value that we're going to deliver to people. But I think we have to lean on other people. That shouldn't be our primary thing. That's just my opinion. I know a lot of people are great marketers and great writers at the same time. I don't think I am. So I trust other people. Well, I think your generosity is remarkable and I would, I think it's marketing. I don't know if you see it that way, but again, like all the free content and even releasing the non-commercial rights of your work and things yeah. and that. So, 
Anyway, from my view, from oh, what thank it's worth, you. you're doing a good job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think that generosity, like just to hammer on that point once more, like the best marketing starts from an imbalance, right? Because like if I write stuff on my website and put it out into the world for free and not ask a single thing in return, but I work endlessly and tirelessly to create value for my readers and to help them out, when it comes time to say, oh, I need to make a living, <laughs> and by the way, I have this book out, do you want to buy it? People are far more likely to buy it compared to if I was just marketing at them constantly and saying, this is what I have. I have this now, I have this now, I have this now, you can buy this and this and this. I think we need to deliver value first before we ask for anything, before we ask for any money. I think you're right. Absolutely. Okay. So final question, mm -hmm. what advice or encouragement? Now you could answer this. You can answer this a few different ways, but what advice or encouragement would you give anyone listening who is working to complete their own creative project and, or what final encouragement or advice would you give people generally? It's, I don't know. It's possible. It really is. I remember when I first got the deal to write my first book, I didn't think I could do it. Like you get a book deal and nobody tells you, okay, here's how to write a book. <laughs> You're just kind of sent out on your own and you figure it out because you have no choice but to figure it out. So I think, you know, putting yourself in a position where you have no choice but to figure something out is, is one of the most valuable things that we can do. So, I, you know, my first book was called The Productivity Project. And when I graduated from university, I declined a few full-time job offers because I wanted to experiment with productivity. So I took a year, because that's how much savings I had in my bank account, took a year, declined the jobs, to conduct dozens of productivity experiments on myself, to write about them online, to create that imbalance. I interviewed people from around the world just driven by curiosity and trusting that things would work out. And because I gave myself no choice but for things to work out, and I didn't start with an audience, but I gained an audience, gained a following, didn't happen automatically. It didn't happen without a lot of hard work, but I think it did happen because I gave myself no choice but to succeed. And that led to the first book, which led to the second book, which has led to a lot of speaking and consulting opportunities that I'm grateful for to this day. But I'm also grateful to my previous self for giving myself no choice but to succeed in doing those types of things. And so I think, you know, give yourself no choice but to succeed in a project. Make sure you're accountable to somebody. If you have an environment in which you're less structured, invest in productivity strategies, and I think you'll be okay. Chris, awesome. Thank you again for making time. I'm so glad that we connected. I'm yeah. really grateful to you. I don't know when and where we'll connect again, but I know it will happen, and I look forward to it. This is awesome, man. Thank you so much. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me 
and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 